You're listening to She Speaks Academic Muslimas. Today, we have an excellent episode featuring Dr. Julie Pryor, who just got her PhD in early modern and 18th century drama from University of Toronto. This interview was recorded over the summer, and since then, Dr. Pryor is now an assistant professor of English at Oklahoma Panhandle State University. In this interview, Dr. Pryor talks candidly about her journey to Islam, abusive relationship, divorce, and Shakespeare, among many other things. It's an amazing interview. Please support the work of Muslim women in academia by liking, reviewing, and sharing this podcast. Now, let's turn to Dr. Julie Pryor. Assalamu alaikum, Julie. Thank you so much for doing this. Wa alaikum salam. It's my pleasure, Saba. I want to go ahead and begin right off the bat. I want to ask you, when did you graduate and what is your area of expertise? So I defended my dissertation just this past November 2020, and I will be convocating, inshallah, in June. So I am very fresh off the, the dissertation situation. And my area of expertise is Shakespeare in performance and Shakespeare adaptation, specifically performance in the 18th century. And I'm really interested in working on the intersection of actors' lives and the way that adaptations are represented on the stage. Oh, wow. Excellent. I, I'm so interested to hear more about. I think I mentioned to you right before the interview that my exposure to Shakespeare is so limited, like it's embarrassingly limited. But um, I would, you know, uh, we'll start off with a little bit more of on the personal side. You had mentioned that you'd be willing to share your journey about converting to Islam. Generally speaking, from my own experience of talking to converts, I know a lot of converts are hesitant to share their journey because it is so personal. And oftentimes the way that non-Muslim people and Muslim people, people who are uh, non-Muslim people and people who are born into the faith, uh, the way that they ask these questions about the conversion is quite invasive. Has that been your experience? I think... Um, it really depends on the context that I find myself in. So certainly in some situations, I have been asked very invasive questions and it can be uncomfortable. But in other situations, I find that people can be pretty tactful in the way they ask the question. And it really comes down to the context that I find myself in. So for example, for example, I'm thinking about in Canada, I have worked a lot with newcomer students, people who are first generation Canadian have just moved here. Oftentimes, I don't know if it's a cultural thing that maybe people feel culturally it's appropriate to ask really direct questions that are very personal. Sometimes that happens in that context with, with newcomers um, who are maybe more attached to their home culture. So I've and I don't really want to generalize about which culture, but that's my observation. And then in the more academic context, I think when non-Muslims are interested in asking about my conversion, they're a lot more tactful. They're a bit hesitant to even bring it up. I think there are probably so many people in my academic community who know I'm a convert because I at one point wore the hijab and then at a later point I stopped wearing the hijab. I think I've been asked questions about, oh, did you convert back? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I, I didn't. I've just, you know, had a development in my faith and this is where I'm at in my journey um, right now, but that doesn't make me any less Muslim, uh, inshallah. Uh, so yeah, it's really based on on who I'm talking to and in what in what context. 
Right. Thank you for that. Uh, you, so you, like I said, you had mentioned you'd be willing to share a little bit about your journey. What was your journey to coming towards Islam? Yeah, I'm very open about sharing it. I think, I think the reason that I sometimes feel a bit defensive is when the questions get really, really personal about particular things. And I'll talk about that later, specifically on the topic of divorce. Um, that's when people can kind of overstep the boundary. But in terms of my conversion story, I don't know how typical it is. I think the most common question is, did you convert for your husband? Um, because I, I am divorced. I was married at the time I converted. Interestingly, we got married in a Catholic church. I was born and raised Catholic. Um, I was in a very religious family. My father actually had attended the seminary to become a Catholic priest. My grandmother was a missionary and almost became a Catholic nun. Um, and so I come from a, a background that like religion was, it is very, very valued. And so I think when I moved to Saudi Arabia, we got married in the Catholic church. That was important to me. I was very practicing Catholic. But once I got married, my, my ex-husband is Muslim. He's originally from Bangladesh. We moved to Saudi Arabia. I thought this would be an awesome cultural experience. It would be, I had just finished my master's degree and I thought, great, I can pay off my student loans. I can have this great cultural experience. I can get some lines on my CV with teaching experience. It seemed awesome. So I agreed to move to Jeddah and I met this amazing community of Muslim women at the university where I was teaching, where I was working, and we just had all these really deep conversations about faith. And I think what really drew me to these women, this community, was their openness, their genuine questions. They weren't asking me questions about Catholicism in a way that was like, oh, we want to convert you. You're wrong and we're right. Their questions were more just, oh, can you explain like what you believe? Do you, do you worship saints? Do you pray to statues? Like all these questions that, you know, I was a very confident Catholic. I was raised, like I said, in this environment where I knew my faith so well, but they asked me so many questions that really made me think more deeply about my beliefs. And I, one of the rituals in Catholicism is you're baptized when you're a baby and then when you get to be a bit older, um, I was in grade eight, so I was about 12 or 13, um, you go through confirmation. Um, which if you're not familiar with that, you're basically making, so when you're baptized, your parents are making a promise to, mm -hmm. to raise you in that faith. When you're confirmed, you are taking on that responsibility at a personal level. And so I remember, I'm backstepping with my story a little bit, but I remember being at that age thinking, I haven't studied any other faith. How can I choose this one? And it wasn't that I was doubting Catholicism, but I was certainly aware, very aware that mm -hmm. I lived in a very conservative community. I was only exposed to people that were like-minded. I went through the Catholic school system. Not everybody was super religious, but I really, I never met a Muslim. I never met a Hindu. I never met anybody who wasn't just like me. And so I think that kind of sowed the seeds of wanting to learn more. I've, I've always been an avid learner, which, you know, naturally extended into my academic kind of pursuits. Um, in any case, that's the foundation that I think is important for me to mention before I talk about my actual conversion. So that brings me to, you know, marriage, Saudi Arabia, being with this amazing community of women, and something in Saudi among my colleagues and just the culture in general that was just so beautiful to me was the way that you know, no matter what people were doing, when the call to prayer came in, 
you stop what you're doing and you go and you you pray you carve out that time and not everybody in my university was like rushing to pray there were certainly you know people who weren't <laughs> actively praying five times a day but just the, the whole idea that there was the adhan on the PA system and it was just a reminder that remember God, remember God, like remember what is important. And I just found that so beautiful. And I just found the way that my colleagues respected my own faith, my own journey and spirituality. So then I had this other colleague who wasn't kind of in my close knit group, but she was in the department. And I remember her saying like, you know, here, I have some books, would you like to borrow a book? And it wasn't one of those preachy books. It was just a book about, I think it was called From My Sister's Lips by Naima B. Robert. And it was basically these stories of all these different Muslim women around the world and just their own stories. And she also lent me a book called If I Should Speak. And that's part of a trilogy. I'm trying to remember the author's name. Um, but those were both stories that were just, I guess I'm a literature person. And so having this personal kind of narrative story of women's experiences, one of them was a fictional and one of them was more nonfiction. Um, but just being exposed to all these different stories of conversion and, and how everybody has their own faith journey and their own struggles. Um, these were all the things that really set the foundation for me to start asking questions about my Christian faith and wondering, is there more? Is there something a bit more nuanced than Islam really started to feel important in my heart? And I wasn't sure if it was because one day I wanted to have kids with my husband um, that was certainly always in my mind. We had had lots of conversations that I was like, no, I want to raise our children Catholic. Like it's important to me. But I think I was really, really aware that I wanted to learn about Islam if for no other reason than to understand how he would be talking to our future children. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was the spirit that I entered a lot of the conversations that I was having with my colleagues at that time. So that was like almost nine years ago now, which is incredible to look back on. Um, yeah, so I, I just started learning. I had a completely open mind. I just wanted to understand. I just I just wanted to know where they were coming from and know where my my husband was coming from and know what my children would be taught one day. And it just, and then it was also very, I mentioned I'm divorced. And so our marriage was very, very, very rocky. It wasn't a healthy relationship. And I cried so much. And part of it was culture shock. Part of it was being a new newlywed. Part of it was being isolated. Part of it was being in a very controlling relationship. Um, but I cried. I have never cried so much in my whole life. I would go to work. I'd talk to my colleagues who became my family kind of. And then I'd come home and I would just cry and cry and cry. And my husband wouldn't take me places. He wouldn't let me go out. He wouldn't allow me to take taxis. And I just felt so isolated and so alone. And I divorce never even crossed my mind at that point because like being raised Catholic, it was just off limits. It's not something anybody does in my family and in, in for a practicing Catholic, you don't get divorced, period. It's not even on the table. And so I just felt so low. I was just so, it was just heartbreaking. I was heartbroken. Everything in my life felt like it was upside down and I felt just lonely and lost. And I just remember having this moment where I was lying in bed crying on the weekend. And I remember just saying to God, like, God, 
I don't know if you're Jesus or God or Allah or, or who you are, God, but like, I am just praying to you, God, please give me guidance. Please show me the truth and please give me comfort. And it was just the most sincere prayer that I think I've ever prayed in my whole life. It was just this out of the depths of my heart. And I don't know, from that moment, something kind of shifted in me and my heart just changed. And I remember for so many years while my husband, my ex-husband and I, when we were dating, when we were engaged, I always thought that, well, Islam seems like a beautiful religion, but I don't know how I could ever not believe Jesus is God. Like everything else I can get my head around, but you know, in my mind as a Catholic was Jesus is God. That's what I believe. That's how I was raised. And I, I couldn't get my head around any other reality. But in that moment, when I was praying to God and saying, God, I don't know who you are, but just guide me. Like that was really the moment. Like, I just remember it. That was the moment that God changed and guided my heart that you know, there is only one true faith. There is only one true religion. Like, yes, Catholics have their faith and other religions have their own beliefs, but Islam is for you, Julie. And like, I just felt that in my heart. And so I started, I started learning how to pray. I started kind of, I didn't even tell my husband at the time that I was like going through this. I just started learning more about how to pray because I thought that's the obvious starting point. Um, and then yeah, I don't know. You can ask more follow-up questions <laughs> if you want, but that's the gist of it. <laughs> that's a beautiful journey. I mean, two things kind of stand out to me in that journey. One is that the assumption, did you convert for your husband? In your story, actually, it's quite the opposite. Like, it was the isolation within your marriage that led you, not the bond within your marriage, but the isolation in your marriage that led you toward Islam. And then the other thing that kind of stands out to me uh, is this idea of the heart and like this moment where the heart shifts and the heart opens up, which is an idea that is mentioned in the Quran. And that's a really personal shift where you, where, where some all of a sudden like things become clear. And, and sometimes I feel there are points in my life I felt that clarity, but there are points that I haven't. And there, it's always something I'm striving towards is that is that definite clarity. Uh, you know, and then you mentioned the Saudi community. I wanted to ask, what are your experiences with all the various Muslim communities that you've been part of in the past decade? They're so diverse. They're so, it's just so, it's so contingent on context. I keep, I guess, repeating that from earlier, but in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, I talk about my community of my close knit group of colleagues and we were in the same hallway in the same like group of offices and we would have our coffee together and sit on the couch in one of our offices and just talk and talk and have kind of breaks between marking and, and teaching and that was one community and then the bigger community within that university was also you know, a bit more diversified. Um, there were certainly expatriates um, who were non-Muslim, but I do remember when, um, I don't even remember who told the dean that I had converted, but <laughs> I remember she announced it in front of the whole university. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, so just on the spot and I was very overwhelmed, but I also was so touched that, you know, people were crying and they were so happy for me and they were just to see how 
special that was, was, was really amazing. So that community was really a positive experience overall. You also mentioned to me that you are married and divorced. Uh, yeah. What was what impact did that have on your life, and what was that experience within Muslim communities? That is where things were, I think, a bit more complex. And so I think that this whole experience, I'm recently divorced, and I think that really challenged my faith a lot, like a lot. I. I've been really strong. I've always been a person of faith. I've been really strong in my Islam for, you know, the most part since converting, but there was a moment. And again, like it's it's interesting how there's specific moments in time that really stand out on my kind of faith trajectory. And so one of them was that moment where I just was talking about my heart changing. And this other moment was a moment in March 20, 19 March 2019 I remember I had about three or four days where I genuinely questioned should I be Muslim and it's so like a sakbarullah I it's hard to talk about that but I had a few days where I just I cried all night and I prayed to God that God like the community is shunning me. They are judging me. They want me to go back to my abuser. I would have some of my students who didn't really know me realize, oh, she had a wedding ring on and now she doesn't. Oh, she's divorced. So then taking me aside and telling me that I am shaking the throne of Allah and I should not, you know, be be calling myself Muslim if if I would dare to divorce him and have Sabr sister you know it will get better just stay with him you know your kids they need you together and oh I just God. I just got to the bottom of the bottom where I thought is this Islam is this what Allah wants for me because if this is what Allah wants for me for me to put my children in harm's way and myself in this really horrible relationship no, I can't be Muslim. If that's what God wants for me, no. But then I just had those three or four days where I read a memoir from this other convert sister. Her name is Kayla Umdayo, and she wrote a memoir of her own relationship with a sheikh in Egypt. She moved to rural Egypt with him, and her memoir is called Things That Shatter, and she wrote about her, her whole experience, and it was really traumatic and um. Anyway, in her afterward, she mentioned this more, <laughs> this more, um, I don't know how to explain him. He's not really liberal, but he's a more open-minded scholar of Islam. Um, and his name is um, Khalid Abul Al-Fadl. Mm -hmm. And I've, I started reading him. I ordered his book from the university library and I, I started listening to some of his lectures. And after that, those few days of doubt, I finally felt peace. I was like, okay, there is a middle way. Islam is not about subjecting myself to abuse and staying and harming my kids and harming myself. Islam and God want me to be happy. And, you know, divorce is allowed in Islam. Like if anything, Catholicism would be, you know, making me suffer. It's not Islam that is, is and it's not Allah that wants that for me. And so I came out of that really, really dark place. And I, I think have been really growing more strong in my face since then. But at the same time, that was the time that I decided to take off my hijab because I did not feel strong enough to 
subject myself to the Muslim community where I live. And I didn't feel strong enough to keep my faith if people would talk to me that way anymore. Wow. The hijab, I mean, I completely empathize that moment where you're like, wearing it is subjecting me to more scrutiny mm-hmm. in some ways. Would you say Which that? It was unbelievable that it wasn't the scrutiny of non-Muslims. That's the part that is so unsettling. It was the scrutiny of other Muslims. Mm-hmm. What is motivates that kind of scrutiny? I mm-hmm. want to hear from your life experience. Yeah, I think so. The example of more than one student who would talk to me like that. I think part of it is that I'm a very open person. I'm not scared to talk about things that are taboo. And if somebody wants to talk to me about divorce or domestic violence or or anything, like I am very, very open and I I talk maybe too much, but (laughs) I think on the flip side, I think people don't respect, you know, proper boundaries about, you know, there's certain things you shouldn't really be questioning in people and judging them for. So there's other situations, even where I live, I live in the suburbs of Toronto and I grew up here. Certainly when I was young, it was a very, a very homogenous white community. Um, even like 10 years ago when I converted and I moved back here shortly after, my parents would talk about, oh, that one Muslim pharmacist, that one Muslim lady that we live lives in our town, like there's only one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and now, you know, subhanAllah, it's a lot more diverse. There's a lot more, like a lot more immigrants are coming out a bit to my side of the city and the suburbs. But I do know, like, even when I would wear the hijab and I would take my kids out to the park or to the beach or something, like there would always be these aunties just staring me down, like staring me down as though you know okay maybe my pants aren't as loose as yours are but like Mm -hmm. really do you need to give me that horrible look like it was just so harsh Mm -hmm. do you think that was in part motivated by the fact that they could tell from your race that you're probably a convert yeah probably (laughs) I definitely I, I don't know but then I also feel this is a weird thing because I am very acutely aware that I have privilege. I am an educated white Western woman. Like I am the epitome of privilege. But at the same time, I think I experience this weird, I don't know what it is. It's judgment. Just, yeah. Okay. Judgment. Yeah. It's yeah. Jud- judgment by Muslims that I'm somehow not good enough or I'm not, I'm not really Muslim or I'm not truly practicing if I'm not wearing things exactly the way they expect. And mm-hmm. again, it wasn't even in that context on, on, at the park, like that wasn't even words. It was just looks and, and non-Muslim people are more like, you look great. I love your hijab. Oh, wow. Like saying nice things and building me up and making me feel positive. Like, mm-hmm. so it's been challenging. I think for people who are born Muslims, much like any religion, and this happens in other religions as well, there is like this expectation that we somehow control what Islam is and hence become the uh, gatekeepers Mm -hmm. of measuring other people's Muslimness. And for women, sadly, that measurement is often on completely shallow aspects. So first there's the problem of gatekeeping, which is a serious problem in itself. But then there's the additional 
problem that women in particular face, which is that, you know, how high is your pant from your ankle or how tight is it around your calf or is your hair like kind of loose outside of your hijab or do you even wear a hijab? Are you wearing full sleeves, three quarter sleeves or half sleeves? I mean, the, the, the policing, the politics of respectability is just suffocating sometimes. Yes, I agree. And that's something that really was salvaging for me about um, Khalid Abul Al-Fadl, that he is, he is such a middle way kind of scholar. And he really, there was one YouTube video he posted, I think it was last Ramadan. And there was a question and answer that he did with his wife. And at one point, he just said, like, very firmly, and I just started crying. He said, leave woman alone. Leave woman alone. And mm-hmm. he really talks in, in, at, at length about this, I guess, yeah, the idea of gatekeeping that you're, you're referring to and just how superficial that is. That is if the essence of our faith is what we wear what kind of faith is that? Like that is not the heart of our faith. Right. It's so much more than that. Oh man. Uh, How did all of these life experiences, which are so rich and so layered, how did they all shape your research interests, if at all? I think that somewhere in the back of my mind, I always had this idea that I wanted to do research on women and feminism and women's rights, women's place in a patriarchal society. I always, as an undergraduate student, very strangely, would always avoid essay questions that were about those very topics. And I feel like maybe I was running away from something that I didn't want to face. And then my own lived experience just kind of kept pushing me back to like, this is an important topic. This is a topic that is real, is pressing. And I really am a firm believer that drama, because I'm a, a, a scholar of dramatic literature, early modern dramatic literature, I'm, I'm a firm believer that drama is an avenue to create social change. And so my research is really driven by that underlying idea that it's not just words on a page, like there is change to be happening here. And so some of the adaptations that I I work with are really about very explicit violence against women. And I think these are things that I talk about them in relation to theories of the abject that we do not want to face it. We don't want to acknowledge the real violence that is happening to Mm -hmm. women at the hands of patriarchy. And I don't know if I'm like a hardcore feminist, like I do not hate men, like I am not extreme at all, but I do think that women are still suffering and I think it's terrible. And I think Muslim women are a subset of women who often experience these things. And um, my research is really, so my, my main text that I looked at in my dissertation that I'm working on expanding is The Taming of the Shrew. And if you don't know about that play, a shrew is basically a woman who is rebellious and non-conforming and doesn't want to fall into line and, and get married and submit to her husband. So the whole premise of that play is that this woman named Catherine is a shrew and nobody wants to marry her. And her father says, 
listen, nobody is marrying the younger, beautiful sister, Bianca, until Catherine the Shrew is married. So here she's going to have this huge dowry. Who's going to take her so that I can marry her off? So this man comes along named Petruchio, and he's like, I am born to tame you, Kate. I am going to tame you and make you stoop to my lure. And essentially oh, wow. he he traumatizes her and he he's just exerting all this coercive control and psychological manipulation and gaslighting and taking all these really terrible measures to tame her and at the end of the play she says essentially in this long dramatic speech that like you are my lord my husband my keeper my king my sovereign and i submit to you oh and, my goodness yeah so that's and it's a comedy <laughs> believe it or not um but that play really in a lot of ways mirrors some of my personal experience that you know I don't I refuse to submit like I I know I know that I have more value than being an item or being a man's possession to just serve his beck and call and I think that a lot of times religion gets deployed in service of forcing women to conform to that ideal and I think that's very problematic and not only from a feminist perspective because but 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 also just from a moral perspective it's very troubling um so that really informs my research and you can tell like the clear example from the taming of the shrew but I'm I really do a lot of work exploring it's its adaptations throughout time and the different ways that that play has been changed in relation to different social and cultural contexts. So, I mean, one thing I wanted to say for, for your earlier point that you raised, I am a hardcore feminist, but I am, but I think being a hardcore feminist obviously does not mean that to be anti-men. In fact, I think men also suffer from, uh, you know, from the impact of patriarchy uh, yeah. itself. But I'm just shocked about Taming of the Shrew. I think I told you in the beginning that my only exposure was, I think I did um, Midsummer's Night Dream and Julius Caesar for my O-levels or something, uh, literature exam. And uh, that was my only uh, experience with um, with uh, Shakespeare. But I am shocked that it is so blatant in Taming mm -hmm. of the Shrew. Why did you choose to work on Shakespeare and its adaptation? I mean, why work on something so... Um, so far, like, you know, back from today's time? I think I've always, I've always found some kind of comfort in Shakespeare ever since I was in high school. I think I'm a deep thinker. I overanalyze things. That's how I, how I am. And I thought, you know, Shakespeare is the perfect way to apply my way of thinking because literary scholars are really into close reading texts and overanalyzing things and dissecting all the different meanings that a text can have. And Shakespeare in particular is notorious for having so many layers of multiple meanings and complexities in his work. And so that always has appealed to me at a very personal and academic level. Yeah, that's, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'd be so interested in uh, reading up more on this project. What are your immediate plans for this project right now? So right now I'm working on publishing an article um, on 19th century uh, couple cast shrew productions. So married couples who have performed those two roles of Catherine and Petruchio on the 19th century stage and the ways in which their offstage marriages come to bear on how they represented Catherine and Petruchio 
on stage. And so I'm really struck in the research I've done and in the archives I've looked into and the actor biographies I've read. I'm really, I've been struck over and over again by the type of actors who've been drawn to these roles and the ways in which their personal marriages and offstage relationships really frighteningly mirror the abuse and control that occurs in the play and I think there's a lot to be said there for what I said earlier the the social change that that seeing these abject representations um played out live on stage before your eyes uh, can can do for for pushing people to realize that these are problematic real world issues it's not just a story from the late 1500s it's real life it's happening still yeah I mean uh, and that that comes back to that comes back to what you had said earlier about your own life this sense of being you know somebody trying to control you and somebody trying to um isolate you um mm-hmm. so that definitely is something a narrative that we see that we see happening in our in our you know day-to-day lives maybe not to the sometimes to the extreme that you know that people like to sensationalize but definitely in the lives of many women um uh, some variation of that yeah for sure and i think that relates to my second project which is my bigger longer term project which is developing that topic into a monograph that really explores you know more real life implications of the the drama of Shakespeare and Shakespeare adaptations. So I'm going to be looking at the way that case law around domestic violence cases and domestic abuse and and coercive control is represented in Shakespeare and is represented by real actors who audiences really see these real life overlaps um, with. And I also think that there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of strides, thankfully, in in the law in terms of domestic violence, particularly in 2018 in Scotland, they passed a new domestic violence law that makes coercive control illegal. So people can be put in jail for coercively controlling their partner, even if they don't lay a hand on their partner, if they are monitoring them, if they are locked you know, texting them, harassing them, um, Mm -hmm. even without violence. And I hate saying even without violence, because (laughs) like, there are so many levels of domestic violence. But I think that's a step in the right direction. And recently, I'm Canadian, I'm in Canada. Um, Recently, we've had a change in the Family Law Act, the Divorce Act, that similarly recognizes the effect of domestic violence and coercive control in particular as the worst form of domestic violence. Um, and so I think that my my monograph that I'm really trying to make these explicit connections between case law and just legal status of domestic violence in its various forms, I think there's a lot um, of, of work to be done on that. And I think drama is a really profound and powerful um, way of looking at the experiences of, of both victims and perpetrators of domestic violence, because drama gives us really subjective insights like Shakespeare gives us you know soliloquies where somebody is speaking what they're thinking alone on stage and kind of letting you into their mind and it gives Shakespeare gives us these scary insights into that mentality so there's so much to be done there well this is such a layered and beautiful project that you're working on I hope that it comes to fruition soon so we can have access to it um, and I'm so glad that you're working on this. 
thank you so much for sharing your life experiences, uh, for sharing your life story, your journey to Islam, and your research um, that you're uh, currently working on. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Saba. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Uh, same. D- ditto. And I, I do want to say that I also appreciate the fact that that a lot of people are quite hesitant to talk about issues of divorce and domestic violence. And that I think, I think by having these conversations, hopefully we can, we can take the, we can take the stigma out of it so that people can come out of such relationships and not, not equate them with some sense of morality or religion. And then as a consequence, end up staying in abusive relationships. Absolutely. So, so I appreciate I appreciate the your your candor uh, in that respect. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikum.